We continue to look at the Godhead by examining popular and historical errors in this episode of The Unapologetic Show. Welcome, Thinking Christians, to The Unapologetic Show, where we defend truth without compromise with Dr. Bobby Conway, the One Minute Apologist. I'm your host, Tim Hall. Last week, we talked about the biblical support for the Trinity and why Christians uh, should know that biblical support and how important knowing that biblical support actually is. And so, this week, we're going to do a little bit more of a deeper dive into that support for the hyperstatic union in a few weeks. But this week, we wanted to touch on just some, some false teachings that seem to come up, some different um, you know, religions that understand the Trinity or deny the Trinity altogether, and how we can address those. So, Bobby, for you, help us understand why it is important to know false teachings uh, throughout history when it comes to the area of the Trinity. There has been uh, false teaching, and that's something that's helpful for us to recognize uh, as Christians. Uh, just because somebody says they believe in God or I believe in Jesus, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they believe in the triune God. Uh, saying I believe in Jesus, uh, well, which Jesus are you talking about? The, the Jesus of Islam, the Jesus that Jehovah's Witnesses believe in, uh, the Jesus of Hinduism, the New Age Jesus that separates Jesus from the Christ, where Jesus was a historical figure who experienced a Christ consciousness. Are you talking about that Jesus? Uh, so uh, this is what these early Christian apologists were doing, is they were warding off false views of God. They took the scriptures as the foundation by which God has made himself known. And in the scriptures, they saw God revealing himself as one in essence and three in person. Uh, that is to say, there's one God revealed in three persons, namely Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But as time would go on, there would be various heresies that emerged. And the role of the apologist was to protect the purity of the text and to preserve the purity mm. of Scripture, and to equip people with an understanding of who God is and how to recognize some of the false teachings that are out there. And so, by having a more crystallized perspective on some of the false teachings that have emerged throughout uh, you know, time. I mean, as it relates to Jesus, you've got things like Ebionism and Doceticism and Nestorianism. And as it relates to the Trinity, you've got, uh, you know, modalism and tritheism and these different viewpoints. And in today's modern world, people would be familiar with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or even Muslims. And their rejection of the Trinity, but then how they understand the Trinity. Mm -hmm. So, we have to understand if we don't know 
what the Bible teaches about the, the Trinity, how are we going to defend the Trinity, and how are we going to discern when somebody doesn't believe in the Trinity? Yeah, and I mean, I, I would add to that because I think that's that's an excellent point. That you know, it's just good. It's good church history. It's just good to know how some of these controversies came up. What were some of the other things that people were believing? Absolutely. So that that's just, I mean, an excellent. Uh, we should be his, we should be church historians in that sense. As apologists, we should understand how some of those things have come about. So last week you gave a definition of the Trinity from Wayne Grudem, and I'm just going to go ahead and refer to that. You, you just touched on it a little bit, but the, their specific quote from uh, Grudem's systematic theology is: God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. So again, we did a deeper dive into the biblical support last week for the episode, so we're not going to touch on all of the biblical verses that support uh, the idea of the Godhead, and we're going to do more of that next week. We're talking specifically about Jesus, but we wanted to look at uh, just some of that controversy that came up. Again, last week we talked about the Council of Nicaea, so maybe you could just kind of talk a little bit more about why this was such a why the Council of Nicaea was necessary and what kind of came out of that. What was going on in church history at that time that necessitated this council? Well, there certainly before that took place, uh, you've got something big that's going to take that's going to transpire. There's going to be the conversion of Constantine. Uh, and with the conversion of Constantine, that was incredibly helpful because for the first few centuries of the church, the church was being persecuted. There were different emperors and some persecuted the church more than others. But with the reign of Diocletian, his persecution uh, was severe. And so fortunately, with the uh, emperor Constantine be coming a convert, uh, that allowed for him to issue the Edict of Milan. And with the Edict of Milan, this legalized Christianity uh, to be practiced. And so where the Christians were running in fear, in fear, uh, I, you know, uh, having to be underground, so to speak, uh, with Constantine, this really allowed for some thought to take place, for uh, people to group up together in order to talk about theology and doctrine. And some good councils began to transpire uh, from this time forward. Now, what was also taking place is there was this heretical teacher by the name of Arius. And Arius was preaching that Jesus uh, was not co-eternal with the Father, but rather he was a created being. And so having a beginning point, Arius was teaching that basically Jesus was the firstborn of all creation, as you see in Colossians 1.15, uh, that he was a created being. And so this caused a dispute to transpire between the Bishop of Alexandria and Arius. And Constantine uh, called for uh, a council to be uh, gathered at, in 325 in Nicaea. Now, about four years beforehand, Arius was already deemed as a heretic, but he was still vociferous, making his voice known as well as his followers. So when they came together, uh, they formulated the Council of Nicaea, which helped us to understand the relationship of Jesus to the Father, that he is one in essence with the Father, that he's not similar, that he's not uh, created, but rather he is one in essence with the Father. And this was 
what came out of Nicaea and is now known as the Nicene Creed. And then it went through different iterations where the Holy Spirit was also brought on to the ending, showing that the third personage of uh, the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. But that wasn't a part of the original Nicene Creed the way that we see in later iterations. Yeah, I mean, Arius and is probably most the, the most well-known um, de- denier of the Godhead. So I think it would be important to kind of try to understand at least a little bit about what Arius's case was for his position. What, what was he bringing or trying to highlight that led him to the conclusion that he would deny the Godhead and uh, deny the, the deity of Jesus? What Arius uh, would see is that that God was not always a father, so to speak. So mm. God becomes a father when Jesus becomes. And so that's what he would see, right? And so he would see that Jesus becomes, Jesus is created. And so in creating Jesus, then God becomes a father. But before uh, God is the father, God exists eternally, but Jesus doesn't. And Jesus kind of is created and he has a beginning point. And so this is something that uh, caused a lot of problems uh, for people because you think about Jesus saying in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am, right? And he's equating himself with uh, God or Yahweh in Exodus 3, uh, where Moses has this encounter and says, who shall I say uh, sent me? And God says, tell him, I am his sent use, referring to Yahweh. Well, Jesus is uh, equating himself to Yahweh. And so as a result, uh, at, at, at Nicaea, there was basically some serious terminology. And it's been said before, you know, that uh, cults are won or lost in the original languages. And in the original languages, uh you know, you have the Greek language here. And when they put together the Council of Nicaea and they formulated the Nicene Creed, there's this phrase known as homoousia. And uh, it re- means same in substance. And the creed is very careful to say that Jesus is homoousia with the Father. That is to say, he is the same in substance, same in essence as the Father. And so when I say that the Greek really matters here, it all boiled down to a diphthong. Arius would want to say that Jesus was homoousia, similar in substance, but uh, Alexander would want to say that he was homoousia, same in substance. And it's a dramatic difference. Is Jesus similar to the Father, or is he the same as the Father as it relates to the substance, the godness of God? And so this became a big uh, sticking point. And so if you are writing it out um, in English, uh, it's really the difference of an iota. Picture Omicron iota would look like an O and an I, uh, or Omicron, Omicron would just look like two O's. Uh, it, it was that small grammatically, but it was that big theologically. Jesus is not similar in substance to the Father as it relates to being God. He's the same in substance as the Father as it relates to being God. Yet, 
Jesus is not the Father, and the Father is not Jesus, but the Father is Jesus, but the Father is God, and the Son is God, but there is only one God. And this is where people start scratching their heads a little bit, and this is why it's important for us to understand, maybe like when you think of a triangle, you have one triangle with three sides, or one times one times one, like we talked about on last week's show, equals one. So nobody could perfectly illustrate the Trinity, but we can understand uh, three and oneness not being a contradiction, how God could be one, yet three, like a triangle could be one, yet three sides, or like Neapolitan ice cream, right? It's all ice cream, but three flavors, right? Chocolate, mm. strawberry, vanilla. There's one God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's exactly right. One other thing that I've read before about Arius's view is he had this presupposition that God was unknowable and that Jesus was knowable. And so right there, that was kind of a motivating factor for him to look for reasons to deny um, the deity of Jesus. Well, if I can know Jesus in some way, but God is unknowable, then Jesus can't be God. And so that seemed to be a, a motivating factor. So we're going to get to some biblical refutations of Arius's position here in just a minute. But I did want to remind our listeners of a few things. This is a listener-supported show. If you enjoy the show and you want it to continue to um, be coming to your airwaves, uh, please consider su supporting the show. One way you can do that is you can like this video on YouTube, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, or you can make a financial contribution over at our website site, oneminuteapologist.com. I also remind you that this, uh, this show was also on an audio-only podcast, so hello to our podcast listeners. Thanks for checking this out on your favorite podcast uh, player. So with that, we're going to jump back into some of the uh, refutations of uh, some of these. Uh, we're we're going to kind of cover a lot of them, Arius's view and a few others. So before we get to those refutations, um, Bobby, you mentioned in the beginning uh, some other heresies that came up. Let's highlight some of those again. What are some other popular heretical views that you've seen come about that deny the Trinity and, and kind of what are they? So a big one would be modalism. And modalism would be the view that in the Old Testament, God is the Father, but in the New Testament, God takes on the mode of Jesus, and then today, the mode of the Spirit. So like an actor wearing masks, like he comes out for stage on the stage for set one in a mask and then he goes behind the scenes and he comes out and he puts another mask on and then he comes out and puts another mask on and the modalist sees god in that way that you have one god in one person playing three different acts acting as the father acting as the son acting as the spirit so that would be one view that is heretical another view would be when you consider uh, Mormons, uh, they have a heretical view. Uh, they do not believe in the Trinity in the way that we do as Christians. Uh, they have a famous statement, as we are now, so God once was, and as God is now, so we too can become. Uh, and they believe that God has actually uh, went through some different modes, the mode of a human to the mode of being divine, uh, they believe that Jesus and Lucifer were spirit brothers. And so there's uh, a lot of polytheism in Mormonism. They believe that we too could evolve into godhood. Uh, Mormons, when they hear that, might object to it, but we won't uh, be pressed uh, to show them proof of even Joseph Smith's wife uh, 
being very clear that that's what Joseph Smith believed. And in Islam, you think about uh, Muslims, uh, they would definitely uh, see us as heretical. Uh, they believe that you commit the sin of shirk if you adjoin to God any other personage. And so that's the greatest sin to them. You're guilty of damnation. As Christians, we say that the Son and the Spirit are uh, persons of the Godhead. Muslims are strict monotheists. That is to say, they believe in one God revealed in one person, namely Allah. And they see us as tritheists, believing in three gods. Uh, many Muslims will actually think that uh, the Trinity refers to Jesus, Mary, uh, and the Father. Uh, and we have to clean that up to say that's not the way that we understand it. Yeah, that, that, that's a great uh, just kind of overview of some of some of the uh, heretical views. So let's let's just do a a, a little bit of an overpass here on how you would refute kind of Arius's view before we talk about you know getting to some of these other uh, heresies. W what would you say in response to Arius? Arius is sitting here. You guys are hanging out. Where do you go first to uh, to point out his error? I think there's a number of uh, points that I would bring up, and one of them I already alluded to, John 8, 58, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. In John 8, 59, they picked up stones to stone him. I would look at John 10, 30, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Uh, Arius might want to object in the same way modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses or Muslims do. Oh, yeah, but Jesus is saying he's one in purpose with the Father. But then why is it in John 10, 31, it says they picked up stones to stone him? Wouldn't that be God's intent for every faithful Jewish follower uh, to be one in purpose with God? Well, of course. Why did the Jews pick up stones to stone Jesus when he said, I and the Father are one? They knew he was saying something more, that I and the Father are one in essence. Um, I also would say that when uh, you consider uh, Arius, what I'd want to say is today, a modern day viewpoint of Arianism is Jehovah's Witness. Mm -hmm. Jehovah's Witnesses are basically your modern day Arians. And if you ever have a Jehovah's Witness knock on your door, uh, they're going to be quick to point out Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. And they're going to say, hey, check that out. What does it say? And you're going to read that it says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And that's the Greek word prototakos. Now, that is going to have you scratching your head because that's going to sound like Arianism. Oh, he was the firstborn. But that word prototakos uh, in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Hebrew scriptures translated into Greek, which took place about 200 uh, years before Christ came on the scene in the intertestamental period, what you could point out is Psalm 89.27 also uses the word prototokos in referring to uh, the son of Jesse. That, uh, David is referred to as the prototokos, the firstborn son of Jesse. Now, anybody who knows their scriptures knows that when Samuel went out to anoint Jesse's son to be the next king, David was the lastborn son of Jesse, not the right. prototype, not the firstborn. So why was uh, the psalmist utilizing prototokos to refer to the son of Jesse, to David, as prototokos? Well, because prototokos can mean preeminent. Mm. David was preeminent son of Jesse. So too, in Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the preeminent son of God. So if Paul wanted to say that Jesus was the first created 
of of God, he wouldn't have used prototokos preeminent. He would have used prototesis first created. And so you think there's a retort that you could give to a Jehovah Witness disguising himself as a contemporary Aryan. Uh, and that's excellent. And we, we do have a whole episode on how to share your faith with uh, Jehovah Witnesses, and we cover that in a little bit more detail. And again, we'll probably cover a little bit more of that in more depth next week when we talk about um, the the incarnation with Jesus and, and the deity and uh, the deity of Christ. So how would you respond to a modalist? What things would you point to to refute a modalist? If I was talking to a person who is a modalist, I would say um, that while God is one, a modalist is going to see that God is one, but he's got different modes that he operates, right? Like the actor illustration I just shared a little bit ago. Mm -hmm. I would want to say that, um, yes, God is one, but those different persons that we see, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they are God, and that does not compromise monotheism. Rather, we have to understand how the Father, the Spirit, and the Son can be God, yet there's only one God, and how this flows out. And again, you go back to like a triangle. There's one triangle, like there's one God, and there's three sides, like there's three persons. That helps us to understand how this can work together. And so when you consider the biblical data, as we're going to do in the next uh, couple episodes, how the Spirit is considered to be God and how the Son is considered to be God, uh, the evidence begins to stack up. So I want to say that the mistake that they have here is when they take like the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. While that is true, uh, they're underestimating how uh, the Spirit and the Son are a part of the Godhead. Well, let's deal with, you know, two possible objections to some of what we've been talking about. I think one question that comes up, particularly around the whole idea of the Godhead, is how can a spirit be a person? The, the, you know, the idea of person is built right into the Trinity, but how can a spirit, whether it's the Holy Spirit or whether in John it says that God is spirit, how can a spirit be a person? How would you answer that? Well, I believe that you and I are spirits and we're persons. And when we die, our body's going to go into the ground and our spirit's going to go to be with God, right? Our spirit's part of our soul. So we're material and we're immaterial. And so there will be a season uh, that people, uh, and those who've died already, uh, their bodies are in the ground, but their soul's with God and their mm. spirit is a part of their soul. So, uh, and so that doesn't mean because their body's in the ground, their person's in the ground, rather their person is part of their soul. So our, our personage is immaterial. God is spirit. And when God creates us in his image, um, well, Mormons make the mistake of seeing God as corporeal, as physical, because they go, oh, well, if God says he created us in his image, we're physical, so God must be physical. But that's the mistake. When God creates us in his image, it's not saying that God created us in his image that we're physical, therefore God is physical, God is spirit. And so that would be one thing that I'd say is really important for us to realize that a person, uh, uh, you know, is referring to the fact that we're rational, we're emotional, we're volitional, we're moral, mm. not the fact that we're physical. 
That's excellent. So in true one-minute apologist fashion, uh, we got just a few minutes left here to answer this uh, pretty significant question. So if there's a distinction between the persons making them separate persons, what is it? And then how are they equal? Well, they're equal in the sense that the the essence, the, the, the substance is God. The distinctions are in uh, their personage. Now, what is different is the way that they function. Uh, so you think about the way that uh, there's the ontological trinity, right? That they're equal in, es- in person, right? In the sense that they're all divine. But then you have this idea of the, the, the functional trinity, and they each have different functions that they display. The Father does the sending of the Son, and then the Father and the Son do the sending of the Spirit. Some debate whether or not it's just the Father that sends the Spirit. This is the filio cause. Uh, that we debate around in the East and the West. But you can see that they each have different functions and roles to play within the Godhead, and that is where it looks different. Well, excellent work. Again, this is uh, this is a huge topic, the idea of the Godhead and the Trinity, and all of this is something that we're just kind of covering over a few weeks uh, here on the Unapologetic Show. And so, we just wanted to make sure that as we continue to dive in, as we look at the scriptures, uh, if you have questions on this, go ahead and leave them in the comments. We'll do our best to try to get to some of those here in upcoming episodes. And with that, we will leave you but we want to make sure that you come back for another episode of The Unapologetic Show where we defend truth without compromise. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Unapologetic with Dr. Bobby Conway, the one-minute apologist. I am your host, Tim Hall. Be sure to listen to Bobby on Pastor's Perspective Monday through Thursday, as well as like, share, and subscribe to the One Minute Apologist YouTube channel where we have over 1,000 videos. We would also like to remind you that this is a listener-supported program. We would greatly appreciate your support in any amount so we could continue to provide this ministry. If you would like to be a part of our team in any capacity, please visit our website at oneminuteapologist.com. And while you're there, check out all of Bobby's books, courses, and even invite him to speak at your church or event. Thank you for listening to Unapologetic, where we defend truth without compromise. Sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa.